Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. My guest today is Nate Carl, CEO of Spec. Nate joined me almost exactly a year ago to talk about why he and his co-founder Patrick Chen created Spec, specifically because of the issues they experienced as product managers for fraud at eBay and then as product managers at a fraud prevention company, Metrics. And while Spec is the sponsor of Fraudology this quarter, it was important to Nate that this not solely be a pitch about Spec, but he really wanted to provide some of the key takeaways he's had in the last year in speaking with leaders of other departments that some of them often that work with fraud in making technology decisions and others of them that rarely ever get involved in those conversations and decisions about new fraud technology. And these were really key takeaways that he's had in the last year that he wished he had during his time at eBay when he was charged with making major platform and fraud detection technology decisions, and especially when he was trying to communicate with other departments about what the team selected and why. We know that as fraud uh, fraud fighters, those of us that are practitioners of fraud, whether it's on the e-commerce side or the banking side or fintech or marketplace, you know that sometimes the biggest adversaries that we face in doing the most damage to whether your key metrics are chargebacks or account integrity, any of those other pieces, sometimes the biggest adversaries aren't those outside of our company, but inside of our company. And Often it's really hard for us to understand what they want and why they want it. And it's equally hard for them to understand us. And I think that speaks to the different types of personalities and different types of people that are often called to these types of roles, right? Oftentimes somebody who's in marketing is going to have very different things that they care about and very different just personality types as those of us in fraud prevention or in cybersecurity or in operations, et cetera. So we almost speak different languages and care about different things. So I thought this was a really interesting topic that Nate suggested. And this is a really fun conversation. I learned quite a few things. And there's several things that I have learned being a consultant and working with various types of companies and company structures and noticing things like, huh, it makes a difference what matters most during vendor selection time. Whether a fraud department reports up through the CFO versus the CIO versus the head of e-commerce, et cetera. So those are some of the things I've learned. But one of the things I learned in this conversation with Nate was why so many development and engineering teams often deprioritize fraud technology upgrades. Whether to us it's just a simple API. And I always thought that one resting API or JSON API was, or JSON format API was the same as any other one, but that's not the case. So you'll learn that in this conversation too. Nate will explain a little bit at the top about why Spec is talking to 
or often finds themselves talking to all kinds of departments, whether it's marketing or e-commerce or development or engineering, et cetera, and the CISO and all of that, and why it's different than other fraud technologies and the fact that oftentimes you're not talking to those companies until the very, or those departments until the very end. And it's almost like a check the box, right? The fraud department has selected this vendor and we just need to get the okay from legal and from uh, cybersecurity, et cetera. But with SPEC, because they're so much more upstream and they provide so much more knowledge about the customer journey, they provide a single source of truth for all these different departments that actually they all want to know too. And so often they're talking to all of those different departments within the company that really usually don't care about fraud technology or just run siloed from us. And maybe we only talk to them a couple times a year or just about very specific things. They're talking with them at the very beginning to try to get buy-in as well as understand how their infrastructure can help a lot of different departments and not just the fraud department, although that was the purpose in which it was created. So Nate does such a better job explaining all of this than I do. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. I think there will be a lot of interesting takeaways as you think about the other departments and the other people in those departments that maybe you struggle with communicating with or having them understand why your job is so important and that it isn't as easy as they may think it is. So I'm excited to hear what takeaways you have from this conversation. If you are interested in learning more about SPEC, there are a few different opportunities to do so in the near future. So one, you can go to their website, www.specprotected.com. SPEC is spelled S-P-E-C, protected.com, and click around their website and their blog, and you can even book a demo. Two, if you are planning on attending MRC soon, I cannot believe that that's just less than two weeks away, Nate, Patrick, and several members of the SPEC team will be at MRC. So stop by their booth to meet them, and if you say the word fraudology at their booth, you'll receive a premium swag item. Three, if you aren't attending MRC Vegas this year, or if you'd rather see a demo anonymously, I'll be hosting a private webinar slash focus group to learn more about SPEC. And it'll allow you to ask questions, but they won't know who you are. And the only way that they'll know if you even attended will be if you specifically ask me for a one-on-one intro after the event. That opportunity is available to online merchants and consumer fintechs only, and more info is coming soon. But I just wanted to put that plug in. And now here is my fun and informative conversation with the CEO of a fraud technology startup that, in case it hasn't been obvious, I am very excited about. Here is my conversation with Nate Carl. Welcome back to the Fraudology Podcast. Today, I have Nate Carl, CEO of Spec. Nate joined me about a year ago talking a little bit about his journey from being a fraud fighter at eBay to becoming the CEO of a fraud technology startup that is, in my opinion, really changing the game of how we identify and protect fraud. With that, Nate, I'm so happy that you're back. Thanks for joining me. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me back. We can 
pull back a little bit of the curtain and say that we may or may not have talked for two hours before this. <laughs> so, yes, we did geek out about spec for about two hours, which was lots of fun, but also no one wants to hear that. So right. yeah, we tried to record a little bit. We're like, oh, yeah. we're realizing yeah. that like we're just geeking out and on our own conversation, which yeah. we enjoyed very much. But and definitely I do want you to provide some insights into what spec is to give context. But what we really what I think is going to be really exciting is for you to talk about, you know, from your perspective, you are working with so many different organizations and you're working with so many different departments within those organizations that because you do have the mind of a fraud fighter and were one once and you still are just in a different role, I think that you could provide maybe a, I don't know, a guide or some kind of a key to help those of us who have a hard time understanding some of the other departments internally that we need to work with and understand what they care about, how to talk to them and different organizational structures and all of that. Totally. Yeah. And like, and I would never presume like that we know any organization better than the people that work there. Right. Um, But like the flip end of it is like, and the only plug I'll give spec and then we just don't talk about it ever again. So like what spec at its core, what we do is we sit like a bump in the wire between end users and websites and like the APIs that sit behind your apps so that effectively we are seeing and helping you understand and actively shape and manage customer journeys, which is this amazing superpower for fraud teams. But there's a ton of people inside of an organization who care about that. So your security team cares about that marketing, your line of business, like there's just a ton of interest in who gets to shape, understand what these customer journeys are. And what that means is like for spec, it's this like existential requirement for us to every week walk into a new business and understand how do they get stuff done? Like, how do they collaborate? How do they think about reporting lines? How do they think about different domains, different responsibilities, which is an amazing, I think, just study and how companies are built for us, especially merchants, uh, you know, yeah, and the, just the differences that you know, we see those split lines on. But what's, I think, been interesting is just seeing how we start to see patterns form in some of those. And we take the time to get to know every business that we work with. But sometimes we have these like leading assumptions like, oh, OK, cool. Like this is a brand that was built in the 60s and made the hop to online and the early aughts and just like understanding the type of like world they live in and just really being able to empathize with that. Yeah. So I definitely, from a 10,000 foot view as a consultant, I've definitely made some observations in that way too, right? Whether it's the vertical that the merchant is in or if it's fintech and it's consumer focused versus B2B or whatever else, right? You know, whether it's a quick service restaurant or it's a retailer and is it a retailer that started out online or is it a retailer that started out in stores and then had to quickly try to figure out how to get online? Those organizations are structured so differently. And just going back a minute, though, to clarify about spec, that one of the cool things is that you guys actually do provide visibility into the customer journey, which I think most people would think, I'm sure everybody's got that, right? It's just not my department, but that's not the case. And I told you this before, but I was just talking with Matt Vega and Sid Shaw at Novo. And just on Thursday's episode, they were talking about how they envision this world where you're not just identifying fraud at the time of checkout or at the time of login and at the time of creating an account. And really, that's something that I really realized last year when I started to understand and get my head around what you guys were doing at spec was, oh yeah, we don't get to see anything that happens when they enter our website. Who do they enter from? Now, there are some companies that do have beacons and they are able to get signals at different points of the journey. You know, at the same time, 
we're having to make these decisions just with a snapshot of what's happening when they check out. That's like letting, you know, not going to steal Matt's analogy. There's a whole other one, right? If we're talking about in-store experience, that's like seeing someone walk into your store and then not watching them shop or do anything within your store about where do they gravitate to? What do they look at? What do they shop? And then obviously fraud, right? What are they putting in their pockets? How are they stealing it? What are the most thefted items? All of those things. How did they get there? Just all those things, you're not seeing those until they get to the cashier's line. And there's so much misdata. And to your point, because you guys come in and just try to huge, it's like opening up huge lens of being able to see from the moment the customer enters your website all the way through to checkout and every little detail in between from that. Pretty incredible. Uh, And you're able to take that data and be able to allow fraud teams to tell stories, right? And put them into buckets and you can get really creative with fraud orchestration and everything else in different paths. But you can also simply add another layer of fraud technology without having to have an API connection, which is a lot of what we talked about last time you were here. And so because of that, there are other, I imagine, and I guess maybe taking a step back when you are first working with a company, I imagine because you are in the fraud world and that's the problem that you first set out to solve, that you're talking with the fraud department. But then how do other departments get involved? And I guess that varies. And what are they wanting out of it? Are they wanting to stop it? Are they wanting to use it too? Are they wanting to dictate how it's used or how does that work? Or does it depend on the department? So (laughs) it depends on every business is different, right? Like I think it's my belief that people are on the average, they're good, right? So if you find yourself in a role where you are just pigeonholed down into a very specific deliverable or very specific metric, and you feel like a disconnect from being able to actually shape the customer experience, like that usually is like that starting point of like, we either have an unsolvable problem, and we're stuck in a world we don't want to be in, um, or we find people who you think bigger kind of beyond what has been laid out of like the boundary around it. Like if I am to like maybe just put forward a hypothetical definition, like someone who is a fraud fighter, ultimately like their responsibility is to understand who their visitors are and just swiftly get them to the best experience they're entitled to. And that is so much more than like stopping a bad login or a bad payment, right? That is like actually the core of the relationship that you have Mm -hmm. with the customer online. And when your mission is that, it's amazing how easily, you know, people from marketing or people from the e-commerce end of the business or people from security want to jump in and be part of that. Because that is a, if you're going to go home and tell the story about what did you do at work today? Like you're, you much more want to talk about how you're driving impact for real people than you do about you moved a metric somewhere. Right. And, and that's not to say that metrics based businesses aren't, you know, can't be fulfilling or successful, but I think most people would love to be wrapped around that journey of, being the superheroes who are making this thing possible in a world where lots of cybercrime is out there. Yeah, I think there's such a big difference. I mean, I've talked about it before in other episodes, and I know at least a few listeners have actually reached out to me and said, hey, we changed the name of our department because of it. And then I get in the habit of still calling it the fraud department whenever I'm talking. But, you know, I posed, what if we didn't call it fraud prevention anymore? What if we called it business enablement or revenue protection? How much of a a shift internally would that be And really, at the end of the day, I used to tell this to my team all the time when I managed my own fraud department, like the good guys are the ones that pay our paychecks. 
not the bad guys. So it really is our job to make sure that as many good guys, in very simplified terms, uh, you know, legitimate customers using their own payment method that are trying to game the system in another way through abuse and other pieces like that are able to check out as quickly as possible and are able to come back and do it again and again. And that they'll tell their friends. But a big part of that is making sure that we are stopping cybercrime as well. But if we're only stopping cybercrime at the last step, then there's more chances for you don't have the full picture, right? You only have a slice of the picture. So there's more chances for getting it wrong in both directions. And I think that the fraud fighting industry as a whole has gotten really good over the years, but so has the other side too, right? And I think we've really seen a giant shift in the last two years, especially of it's no longer one guy, two guy, et cetera. It's like these giant conglomerates that are all working together. And there's so much more connectiveness, connective tissue between all of them. And there's real life like mafia that are involved in this now, right? Because there's so much money in different parts of the world. The game needs to step up again because the fraudsters have so many other tools too. Totally. Yeah. So there was this, yeah, I think a business movements that were happening like when I was a child, right? Like we were talking about verticalization, right? It's just like, oh, I'm not going to sell a chicken to a market. Then that's the only thing that I do. Like I'm also going to raise the chicken and grow the feed and own the transportation hey. business and just own the whole vertical slice of that market. Like we see the same thing happening in cybercrime where it's no longer necessarily like a here's a marketplace of track data and a marketplace of foals and like mm. a marketplace. It's like, no, 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 they, they are literally running at soup to nuts, which yes. that creates enormous economy for them. But it also creates as precision in what they're doing as well. Mm. And we as an industry on the defense end of it are we don't get to see it moving. They don't write something up in the HBR. They're not writing white papers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> About how they're verticalizing the fraud industry. And yet, like we can see the impact of it. And that's, I think, this new place that we're in. I did want to talk about like the other side of it. So we do see a different another type of business as well. So I talked about something that's a bit more customer centric. This I don't want this to be a four letter word because these are like real businesses that exist. There are also business focused businesses. They're just like, I want to build a compelling business. Or sometimes it's just, I want to build a business where the business model is cogent, right? So like if you are thinking about, I'm just going to throw some broad categories out there, but like a services business that is doing something like fast delivery or a payments business that's very vertical focused where like the margins are very thin, they have to move big volume, they have to like have huge amount of it, right? Those are businesses where like, yes, they're obviously like they care about their customer, but like there is existential threat to the business mm. model if they cannot, if they cannot push on that. And again, like those are the same type of the same type of problems in that like they need to have every department really rowing the boat in the same direction on like protecting the business fundamentally, which again, just gets outside of just like one narrow metric. Right. So like we see those big splits. I would say there are these certain business models that are courageous business models to go after and protect. Mm. And that is something that I think is like a big mission as well. Yeah, I worked for one of the largest online travel agencies in the world long ago. And I don't know if it's still the same, but I, I know this has been published and things like that. So it's not anything trade secret. And it was a long time ago, but it was someone bought a hotel. We had a pretty big profit margin. But if someone bought an airplane ticket on our website, we made $15 per airplane ticket, even if that you know, plane ticket was $3,000. But if it, that plane ticket was bought on a stolen credit card, 
we had to give up that $3,000. And there's a lot of businesses like that. I mean, talk about courageous business models, right? Like there's a lot of them within the marketplaces, within anything like that, where they're not really fulfilling the product, but they're facilitating it in their platform. They're taking a small piece, but the liability is so much bigger. And so there you do have to really be on a like a tight wire, right? Like where you're just like, okay, I'm trying to be on this high wire where we need to balance. I need to get as many sales as possible and as least amount of fraud as possible. And I would like to think that every business had those same goals, but it's not the case. I've definitely seen other businesses where I've got a pretty big profit margin and things are good. So we're not going to worry about it. Right. But then all of a sudden the economy hits and oh, wait, now we have to think about these things. So in a perfect world, everyone would want to balance that. I think more and more, though, there's been more surveys and more talk. And I feel like I've talked about it on the podcast several times and I keep talking about it, that customers are doing business with companies that they like and trust. And trust is a huge factor. I think that the marketplaces were ahead of their time calling their departments trust and safety. Now, granted, a lot of them do more than just fraud prevention, payment fraud and promo abuse and all that. Sometimes it's content moderation. Sometimes it's different pieces of that. Sometimes it's insurance coverage, depending on the marketplace. But at the end of the day, they recognized that if that customer can't trust you, then they won't do business. And actually, from a little anecdote, I was speaking with a, a reasonably sized you know, brand that I think a lot of people would recognize, but it's typically, at least in the US and I think in the EU as well, it's typically purchased in stores, right? By big box retailers or things like that. But with COVID, they decided to, or they made the jump to be direct to consumer and e-commerce in the US. And so they don't have, you know, this longevity of time. They don't have, you know, this long history of customers going back to their website all the time. It's really just a lot of what customers finding them. Oh, they have a website. Okay, I'll Google it. Oh, this is what I wanted. And ordering it, they were telling me that even though for the most part, their fraud chargebacks are covered and there's a few different ways that can be. And this was a consultation, you know, discovery call. And I'm hoping to work with them. And I don't think I'm, I think this happens a lot. So I don't think, I actually, there's more than one company in this situation that I've been, I've talked to in the last couple of months. But it was interesting to me because I'm usually working with the enterprise ones that have been around for a long time. And they were saying, even though we have, for the most part, the money part of fraud chargebacks are being covered, they said, you should go look at our trust pilot because they said everybody is posting that we're a scam website and that we're fraud because their credit card was used there. And then we don't have a long history of customers. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't balance it out. There's no ratio. They're like, we have one star on Trustpilot right now. We have one star on BBB, on the Better Business Bureau. That's because we've had the people who are having successful transactions aren't thinking, oh, I'm going to go rate them on this site. It's the people who have their credit cards stolen and used on that site that are angry and they want to have something. They want to feel like they're doing something about it. So they write a review. And I just want to say, I haven't yet shared on the podcast. And I think it's really interesting to think about that. Like it, it is a big deal beyond just the money. And we say that all the time, but how many customers have they lost before they even got to their website because they Googled them and saw those low reviews and ratings? We don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like there is, I'm not going to say what the query is, but there is definitely an interesting query to run if you operate a marketplace where it is like, okay, cool. Like of the people who have purchased from a seller or a provider and had a negative experience, mm -hmm. what percentage of them never come back? You know, and just like understanding, okay, and compare that to the population that did not have that experience, right? And what is our delta? Like how much are we losing just because the, you know, that first or like one of the first interactions that you have just doesn't spark joy. 
<laughs> right. And like, there's so much competition. There are so few chances to go after this like over and over again. Like I'm a, I'm an avid gamer. There is one game marketplace that like I still do not use to this day, despite all of the exclusive releases that come through it, specifically because I had an ATO experience with them and recovering my account was such a nightmare. I was just like, no, never again. I just don't, I don't feel like they care about me. And I think everyone has stories like this somewhere. Yeah. And similar to that query example, you know, I shared an example last year sometime. I always forget when it was, but I think it was in the summer of some point. And then I think we replayed it around the holidays because it was, you know, a couple different case studies from merchants that I'd heard from that had done some really interesting studies that, you know, they were fine as long as I anonymized it. They, actually, one of them was like, hey, I know who you were talking about us. Um, I'm like, yeah, I thought it was really smart. You know, there was a large marketplace that was having pretty significant account takeover issues, but we're having a hard time getting buy-in from the rest of the business because, it wasn't always impacting in a chargeback, right? Sometimes ATOs are for different reasons, et cetera, or they were taking points out or you know taking credits out, but it didn't have as big of a financial impact directly, like on a one-to-one. So they looked at what was the cust- annual customer spend prior to the account takeover? What was their annual customer spend after that account takeover? And then what's the delta between that and everyone else? And there was a 60% difference. It was 60% less revenue. Now that is averaging out all those zeros, right? So some people came back and never worried about it again. And other, a lot more people didn't. So you're losing 60% of revenue on every account that's taken over. Now that's a story that you can tell, right? But you can only tell those stories when you have enough data. And I think that goes back to some really cool things that you guys have helped, you know, your merchants discover, which we'll talk about later on. But I think just getting this piece together to explain, like, we're no longer just fighting bad guys. I think that was fraud fighting of 2006, 2008, you know, maybe 2010. But now it's no, we really need to be focusing on the customer experience and making sure that every legitimate customer has the best experience possible. And oh, by the way, we're keeping out everyone else. Yeah. And I think this is like a little bit of a bold thing, but I think if I could have any lasting impact, it's like just helping merchants build better organizations, right? Like what I think is the most impactful early thing to get to is having a common source of truth that everybody works off of. That like your security team works off of the same source of truth as your marketing team, as your fraud team, as your whole commerce team. And I think that um, what we've experienced with the businesses that we work with is oftentimes that's scary to start with. You know, if you are the VP of a department, you're probably used to being able to massage the data, create your own narrative and turn that into that. But what that creates organizationally is this perception that like at the executive leadership team, every report every roll up of what's happening needs to be taken with a grain of salt or what's the spin on this or what have you. Whereas like when everyone is using the exact same source of truth, like you have a unified message about, hey, where are we letting our customers down? Hey, where are we leaving our business exposed? Right? Like where are we? I don't, this is a a bit hard to say, but like, where are we not wasting money necessarily, but like where do where do we have opportunities to like reclaim some of what we, you know, get the same output with like less money spent. And I think that is that's a huge thing. Like I I can't put that for far enough. And I think that is it's definitely difficult for different teams. I don't want to necessarily like call out one or the other, but just talk about like experiences they bump into. Like if you're working in fraud, right? Every conversation that you have is an ROI conversation, right? It, it is. And I think a thing that is maybe like foreign to fraud fighters is that marketing teams don't really work that way. Yeah. And security teams don't really work that way, right? So like if you have core 
difference in the value system by which you measure your work, right? Like, how do you like work with people who are ultimately like after the same thing? And, you know, and I think that's always a thing that is important to recognize and just get down to what is the core value system that like all departments can get into, you mm-hmm. know, to keep customer centricity and like in the focus of what they're after. And we bumped into that all over the place. Yeah. And I think that so many organizations for different reasons, whether they were built that way already or there were certain people in certain roles that wanted to be very, don't want to say controlling, but like they want to really hold on to their side. And no, this is you know, very um, territorial. There are definitely some departments and sometimes it's the fraud department, right? That is very territorial. They feel like if I share my data with you or if you know, and do, then you're going to either want to take it over or you're going to want to, to tell me how to do it or I'm not going to be important anymore. And especially with so many layoffs, like there's a lot of people worried about that. And it just breeds the opposite of what you're talking about, because then it it takes away trust internally. And I think one of the biggest challenges for fraud fighters isn't always, actually, I hear many of them say this, it isn't always the fraudsters. Honestly, it's usually not the fraudsters. It's internal, right? It's the internal challenges. And I notice a lot of it too. From my perspective, a lot of it has to do with us not being able to speak to the business. I say that as someone who had no idea how to speak to the business in my first role. And I was providing high level reports to the CEO and the board. And I was talking about ROI and I was talking about in my language and they just didn't get it. Right. But as I got further along in my career and especially becoming a consultant, you have to explain to the people within, you know, digital operations and e-commerce and all that, why you're needed. And so you have to start really translating the impact of fraud on things like customer acquisition, right? And to your point, like the example that came in my head when you were talking about like a single source of truth and being able to look at all of those things. One thing I could see so clearly is a lot of times in the fraud department, we're like, oh my gosh, why are they getting customers from here? Why are they advertising over there? Because all of them turn into fraud or like this affiliate, like we know it in our gut, but it's really hard to prove down the line so far. But if you're able to see it all together from the beginning when they enter the website and oh, all of these are coming from this one affiliate link or all of these are coming from this one marketing campaign and marketing, how much are you spending on that? You know, those customer acquisitions, all those high fives you gave each other for those, you know, thousands of customers, all of them weren't real or they didn't this and that and the other. And and then you can actually, because it's a single source of truth, you can be able to speak the same language, see it. They also agree with it. Oh, wow. We're so to your point of not wanting to say wasting money, but being able to spend it somewhere else where it's actually getting the right customers, that's huge. Yeah. And it builds camaraderie, I would imagine, as well within the team and, and trust and all that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's it's not something that happens overnight. Yeah, as you were talking about, I was like thinking of brand that we started working with last year. And like they brick and mortar brand founded in the 80s and their fraud team is effectively like, we'll say like a team that grew out of payments when they decided to go online. And account security and like account takeover and those concerns fall in security, but not quite. All the things that happen in the middle, like all the weird kind of Broady things that happen in the middle with compromised accounts. They play jump ball and decide whose job that is. Like marketing, worrying about like the effectiveness of redemption or promo abuse, like that's marketing's problem. Yeah. And like in, in order to like, hey, this is the way that this has worked for the last 20 years. So yeah, can we just do the same thing better? Like there is a bit of work that goes into like, okay, but like, could we all pile in to, to do something different? Now, I would love to say 
this ever works in the way of just like everyone equally puts their hands in the middle and then do like the freeze frame thing where they're lifting the air. Like, no, usually it's one team, right? It's one team is like, hey, like, driving it. Yeah, I've got to solve a problem. I, I think we need a fundamental change in our thinking about how we do this. And then, by the way, like, this way isn't necessarily, this isn't a point solution. Like, this is us moving forward into just to use spec terminology, right? Just, just replatforming the way that we think about managing a customer journey, right? And that the responsibility isn't like here or there, it's everywhere. Yeah. So going back to that, as far as some of the observations that you've had about different departments, right? And what they care about. What are some of the things that you've learned? And obviously they're generalizations because every company, I've learned this from being a consultant and you know, to a certain extent, I think that other fraud vendors know this a little bit, but I think specs very different because, I mean, you've worked for a previous fraud vendor before, and I think primarily you just work with the fraud department during discovery and everything else. And then at the end of the process, you are, you know, working with legal and you're working with security to like get things done. But the fraud department's really the one, they're the main customer, right? But you guys have such a unique, because you're providing infrastructure and not necessarily a full solution. And you're providing all of these insights into the customer journey that none of these departments have been able to see. And so I know I've heard some stories, even from merchants that have talked to you that will say, well, yeah, then I thought, well, maybe marketing might be interested in this because we can split the budget. Oh, but then they brought all these other. And then now it's like we've got six teams that all want to use it. And we all want. Yes, we know we want. But now, like, we're all differently you know, and I'm like, hey, guys, I brought this in. Like, I need this to solve this problem. And it's funny because, I mean, gosh, talk about making, you know, the fraud team the cool kids, right? Like, wait, you guys are bringing this new technology? What the heck? But where's some of the observations? Because I do feel like as front fires, we all speak our own language, mm-hmm. but have a really hard time understanding what other parts of the business care about. And I think that's something that uniquely you're able to provide because you speak fraud fighter, but you also have had to go in and learn how to speak all these other languages with different departments. Totally. It's been really, again, these are generalizations. Every business is different. I think marketing teams are, you start the year with like a vendor budget and a loss budget and an operations budget as a fraud fighter. Like just think of the promotion budget and the incentive budget that the marketing team starts with, right? So just imagine if someone shows they're up. they're top line revenue, they're not revenue protection. And we all know. Right. If they bring in the same amount of money as we save, they still get more budget and they're still cooler. And it's a different thing, right? It's just like, a, it's like, hey, listen, so this is the business's money, right? And you have a, an allowance of how much of it you're allowed to lose or spend trying to lose less, right? Versus, hey, this is the business's money, but we're literally pushing it over to you and saying, make more money come out of that money. I don't know, like you're the experts at that. And then like your job is to do that. And then, but it's not just do that, but also like come back at the end of the year to demonstrate your own success and justify that or more the year following. Because there is this thing like as a marketer is that like your budget somehow it has this correlation to like your success and your effectiveness, right? It's like, oh yeah, I can take a uh, a promotion budget where we're spending 30 million and I can 3X that as a growth number year after year. After year. So but the problem with that though, sorry, but the problem with that that I've always had, at least when I had to work with a marketing department directly internally, the CMO, I've, he, I think it's famously now because I've said on the podcast more than once, he had business cards created for me that said chief sales prevention officer. I really wish I would have saved them. I took them all the way and put them in the shredder. And now I'm like, darn it, they were such a fun LinkedIn post at least. But the thing that always bothered me there was that 
they didn't look at anything past conversion, right? So they would look at the numbers. They're not necessarily looking at behavior on the site and all that. I mean, there's some people that are looking at the user experience, et cetera, but from a very different perspective than you guys provide. But yeah. being able to say, okay, so we provided, we paid $30 or $30 per customer acquisition, right? Whether that's in promotions or a promo code or using a certain place or whatever. And now we're going to see that customers spent $100 on their first transaction. As soon as they make that first transaction, that's all the marketing team cares about. They're stopping at where the fraud department starts. And so there's always been this big disconnect because the marketing team can say, hey, we went in and we 3X our budget and we 4X our budget. But how many of those turned into chargebacks? How many of those turned into refund fraud where they claimed that they didn't get the item? How many of those were charge offs in different ways? There hasn't been a full picture. It's been very segmented and they're able to do laps around the office when we all were in offices. But then, but we're over here going, <laughs> but guys, like, no. A lot of that turned into crap or cost us more money than we spent because now we have the chargeback. Now we lost the product. We also lost the customer acquisition fee. We also lost the chargeback fee added up. But we haven't been able to tie those really together because where their line of sight and their metrics start and end, then ours begin. They're not all one thing. And I think that's always been a struggle with fraud, right? It's just if you're CEO of a large merchant, you're like, hey, I want to grow revenues 10 to 25% year over year. And you take the snapshot when the street's going to love it the best. Right? Uh, and that that is the state of the art. And like the street knows better to some extent. But also if you don't play the game and everybody else does, then that only hurts your... You know, so it's, it's capitalism, yay. But what that means is that like you ultimately end up funding the secondary economy of fraud. So that turns into and like where we've seen this done the best is when you like one, you're able to start to tell really clear, undeniable stories about the effectiveness of the money that's being spent. And then using that as a jumping off point to think differently about where you make that measurement. So it's not just like the raw growth. It is the net customer acquisition cost, right? The net marketing efficiency, right? Like, all right, if we are to pull out chargebacks and non-performing revenue, like how much did we actually grow, right? Mm -hmm. Like this isn't going to be in the gap numbers that we put out to the street, but we do know that we're going to improve the bottom line if we keep this in our inside books and move towards a better future there. And like and we've seen a huge amount of success there. But the biggest and most important part of this, and I'm a little biased because I'm a storyteller at heart, is like you just got to be able to tell really clear, undeniable stories, right? Uh, with like data that everybody agrees on. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. 
But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. That seems like the perfect utopia. Obviously, we know from like a fraud prior's perspective that like bringing in technology, we're not necessarily the cool kids, right? When I guess kind of going back a little bit, when fraud providers come in and they're like, hey, we have this thing. Are they initiating it to the marketing department? Are they saying, oh, hey, I think this might. I mean, because marketing does have some insight into the user's journey, but not the full end to end the way that you guys have been able to provide in a really unique way. And so because of that, I'd imagine you know, we just talked about what's in it for the fraud fighters if the marketing team gets on board. But what's in it for the marketing team if the marketing, why would they want to get on board? Why would they want to have that second part of the story? So I want you to imagine putting in your resume bullet for whatever gig you want next or for your case for a healthy bonus at the end of the year that you offset $20 million a year in just non-performing marketing spend. What percentage of that $20 million do you think you can justify into your budget if you are the VP of marketing in that sense? Like it is not a small number, right? Mm. So like, you know, there is an enormous amount of money to be saved. We're not talking, it's not, these aren't little optimizations. There is a absurd amount of promotion cash that is just flowing straight into the criminal economy. And yeah. so that's a, a big piece of getting that on board right now. The other piece of it is that like the attribution actually helps a lot better if it is attribution that the company controls, like different mm -hmm. than tracking pixels that you might put on from different SaaS providers that like beacon off of individual pages, but literally, okay, like where do they go through? Like, hey, well, when does this stop being marketing? I'm mean, going to use the wrong word. When does it stop being like a marketing concern and start and starts being like an e-commerce concern in terms mm. of like, no, like the core user experience is the thing that's holding us up or maybe the payment flow is like a little jank. So like really understanding where that is so that you could have solid, we call it attribution, but really just slicing into cohorts of we didn't get the conversion we wanted, but do we know why? And can we tell that story? And then again, it's one of those things where if everyone's using the same data, then there isn't any like argument about what the truth is, whether it is e-commerce or payments or marketing or fraud. And I think that's been like the biggest push there, the biggest like upside for them. Yeah. And I think too, it's, it's almost like different departments data. It has a different perspective on one thing, right? You know, if you're looking at a house, right? And marketing is looking at the front door, fraud's obviously looking at the back door. E-commerce is trying to look between the front door and the back doors with pixels, with beacons, et cetera, but it's not full picture. It's just all that. And instead, you know, so you all have different perspectives of the house and then you're trying to match them up when you're trying to, you know, when you do have different sets of data, right? Because it's different 
parts. So it's hard to say, okay, this one customer that marketing is on the front door, that's exactly, this is exactly what happened through the whole journey and out the back door. Whereas when you are constantly gathering data and have data for every single part of everything that somebody's doing. And then you're able to feed that to marketing providers or fraud providers or other companies that then use that data to say, hey, this is how we recommend using it or optimizing it even more. There's just so much more that you can do than just having a picture of from one side and the other. And it's all spliced and you're trying, you know, it's to your point, it's the comments as the data and there is opportunity for each department because I'm hearing from you like for marketing it's basically optimizing their budget and saying hey we recognize that it's not saying hey we messed up and there was 20 million dollars lost it's saying hey now that we have a different perspective and we have new insights and new sources of data we now see that like this 20 million dollars of promo codes basically were given out to criminals and so we'd rather use that money to put it in to get actual customers because the $20 million that goes to criminals isn't going to grow your budget at all, ever. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and, and we're talking a lot about the marketing folks, the e-commerce and payments folks, I think the same deal, you know, so it's, yeah, I don't want to get too in the weeds nerdy about this, but if we talk about just mid optimization and even like just changing who's going to be the person to take that core processing responsibilities for any sort of a transaction volumes, like that turns into a bunch of other savings that just like really, again, like everything, everyone's working together in the same direction. It's just putting them on that same level, which becomes like, this huge superpower. It's one of those things where if you're outside the, so we're talking about this, it is like, this is so commonplace that we all know this is true. But if you talk to someone who's not from tech, they're like, wait, why wouldn't they all work together? For people who are outside of tech, right? They're just like, it doesn't make sense to me that if I go to try to buy something from a website that I love, that I have to bop in and out of the work product of 15 different teams before I actually get something shipped to my house. Right. So that's a thing where I think we've gotten so used to how fragmented and siloed things are that like, in many ways, like we've even lost the imagination to think about it being different. I think that's about payments a lot, right? Because especially card.present payments, because it's not like the card brands knew that this thing called the internet was going to come up and all that. So they basically, when it just kind of started up, they're like, okay, we'll shove it into Moto, right? Mail order, telephone order transactions. And we'll process them the same and we'll have the same rules and all that. If we, if they were to have a several year head start and be able to build infrastructure specific to e-commerce, it would probably be more common sense, right? It would probably have a lot less silos. There'd be a lot less, you know, you don't need to go from six or seven different points when you swipe your card or you enter your card number from the time it leaves your computer to the time it goes out to the merchant, to their bank, to the acquire it or the issuer, blah, 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 and then come all the way back. It happens in milliseconds, but still, that's a lot of different handovers and changeovers and things. And there's a lot of issues there. Don't get me started on chargebacks because, you know, this will be like a four-hour conversation about how messed up those are. But there's so many other things too. And it seems like the merchants always get the short end of the stick on all those things. But that's a side conversation. We'll park you want that, Grace. Um, you know, so going back to talking about the different departments, and then also I know that you have observed different things about like different companies and different organizational structures, different ways that the companies are focusing on things and how that can make a big difference too. I mean, you've had so many conversations with so many different companies that you're starting to piece this together like, oh, okay. And like you said, it's not broad. Everybody's going to be a little bit different, but I think it's really helpful for us to understand that from, yeah. especially as a front buyer, you might go, maybe you might change careers like five or six times, right? And you might do 
one implementation at each company, right? But you guys are doing that many in in a month or whatever that is, or quite a few. And so you're getting to have these conversations a lot and be involved in them. And that's why I thought this would be a really fun topic. Yeah. Like I think we might talk to a new organization five to 10 times a week. Right. You know, and just, it's always funny, like, you know, uh, one of our, like our sales people, like, oh yeah, I had this great first conversation with blah, 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 who like runs fraud at this company. It's like, awesome. Who do they report to? Like, that's always the first thing. It's like, yep. do they report to the COO? Do they report to the line of business? Do they report to the CFO? Do they report to the CIO? Right. And that's always the first question because it colors. So like understanding what like the ultimate reporting line of fraud cares about, what keeps them up at night, colors so much about how they think about the world where they have easy access, easier access than not, depending on what those things are lined up on. And also like what their default attitudes are, right? There are still a number of, at a certain scales, there's still a certain number of merchants that like might roll up to a CFO who like, hey, listen, like plan B is we just pull the ripcord, cut down on all of our fraud defense and just go have all of our transactions that are written. And that I think is getting harder and harder. I think that's happening in the world of cyber and it's it's also getting hard in the world of fraud. But that's an attitude that like exists in that specific kind of cohort of companies that there's different strengths or weaknesses or neutral dispositions that we see depending on how it's built. And that that's one of the things I think is fascinating about what we do is that like no company is built the same. That's also part of why spec exists. Because no company and no solution set is built the same. It's, ah, what if we can give them all common language to work with? But like that, that really comes to the the core of the thing that we bump into and we are trying to just like really understand the world that like a given fraud fighter might be living inside. I think when we find them rolling up to the CIO, that's always fascinating. They have much closer proximity to security and security is its own beast like they they if we're talking about different languages like that's latin to fraud or vice versa right well especially for fraud technology i know that traditional and the typical fraud technology we have and again you're not your infrastructure right you're not necessarily a core solution but a lot of the solutions that we have when they're implemented within a merchant it can terrify at the CISO mm-hmm. because it's pulling data from so many different sources. And I think that's also why it's something I've learned just fairly recently. That's also why sometimes fraud gets deprioritized because it's so much of a harder thing for the engineering team to implement because they have to pull from different places rather than one place. And I'm saying it in a very non-technical way, but I hadn't really thought of it like that before until fairly recently. And I think that understanding that too and going, oh, this is why this scares the CISO because this isn't normal. This isn't every other department who asks for an API, it's just coming from one place, right? It's even a little bit beyond that, right? So like, allow me to paint a little bit of a nerdy picture, right? So imagine that you have your core application that your business runs on, and let's just make up a number. Let's say that you have 30 amazing, talented, skilled developers who've been working and maintaining on this application for years, right? It's probably a bigger number than that. And as a security leader, you want to keep the business safe, but you don't ever want to reach into that application because there's so much like history and like a little bit of ego and pride that's snarled up in that, like you really don't want to go into someone's code and be like, I'm going to do this differently. So most security solutions live outside of it. So they are firewalls at the edge, they're DDoS protection out in the data, you know, at the edge of your, your network stack. We have things that are like watching traffic move between service to service. You know, the, the most invasive thing they might do is maybe like scan like 
checked in code that hasn't been compiled yet, but they don't actually go in and tell developers, no, no, redo your app differently. Every piece of fraud technology is like, hey, here's an API. We're going to reach down deep into the heart of the thing that you built tech team and make stuff happen. And just like, and go like, that is terrifying to a security leader, right? Just to go into talk to a bunch of developers and to tell them to re-architect their application around some specific control that they want to put in place. So when the CISO is like talking to and you know, trying to understand the fraud stack, they're like, oh, that is embedded deep inside of a, a briar patch that I just don't want to put my hand into. So it is a completely different mindset shift between the two. And that often leads to it seems like these two worlds should have been working together for a really, really long time. I was really going to say that. Yeah. yeah. You would think that we would have very common goals. And I've actually said that quite a bit, but haven't thought of it from the technology side. I've thought of it from like the, okay, they want to protect the data and we want to protect the money. And for some reason, those are two opposite things, but it makes sense if fraud technology is terrifying the CISO and keeping them up at night doesn't exactly want to mm-hmm. have to deal with it. Like he doesn't, yeah, it scares him, right? So he doesn't want to deal with it any more than he has to. Is that maybe that's an oversimplification? <laughs> yeah. So just imagine like you're the manager of a restaurant and you're like, you're setting out everything about how the restaurant runs, but don't you dare go into the kitchen and tell the chefs how to make a meal. And that's really like that, that split, right? Of fraud is in the kitchen. Fraud is in the kitchen day and night. So it's hot but they're comfortable in it. They know it. They know that stress. Mm. But like crossing that barrier, right, between the dining room and the kitchen is a scary thing for security leaders generally as all. Well, we don't realize, right, we love chaos, but we don't necessarily realize we're in the kitchen because I think that for a lot of us that manage fraud, we're not thinking of it from the technology side, right? A lot of us aren't as technical as you are. And there definitely are becoming a lot more engineers and other, you know, product managers and others who do have technical experience that I just absolutely welcome into the fold. (laughs) But, you know, we don't understand that, right? We just think, okay, an API is an API. Like, I don't realize that the fraud API is going to have to take data from so many different places throughout the company and throughout the system because an API is an API. And that's, oh, it's JSON format. Okay, they're all the same. Like, I legitimately have thought that for years. (laughs) And so, yeah, getting out of security and just into core tech, like I was talking to the CTO from a company that we're starting to work with, where every time the fraud team like brings me a new technology vendor, I have to punch a hole through my tech stack all the way from the front of the application where the users are interacting with it and like being served some sort of experience through into some sort of like pre-decisioning business logic layer into like normalizing, cleaning up that data and then sending that out to some vendor API and then waiting for that to come back and then turning that into some sort of decision and then pushing some sort of action back into the user experience. Like every time the fraud team wants me to do something, it is the most invasive surgery I could ever possibly imagine, right? And like, and as I think for fraud folks, right, they probably don't recognize like how just like enormous of a change that is for the technology leaders who are typically used to things that might have a much more targeted impact. Yeah, I think that often fraud people, myself included, kind of take it personally, right? Like, oh, okay, well, the CTO like always wants, they'll slow down the project, right? And meanwhile, we're losing millions of dollars while I'm going through this like four to six month thing with everybody, you know, with the CTO and then actually getting the engineering resources and all of that, never mind the contracts, those things, but just getting it implemented, right? And we take it personally, like they don't understand fraud, they don't take it seriously. And they think, they may not, but it doesn't help that if, our technology is much harder to implement directly at the virtual level. That also makes sense why that's so, why they're deprioritizing it, why they're taking so much time. So maybe we can take that part at least a little less personally, but yeah, 
I've, I have an easy hack for this, right? And I think your last podcast was like a perfect example of this. Find an amazing product manager and make them sit with you, right? Mm-hmm. Because without a good product manager, like the fraud team's going to bring today's fire to engineering. Mm-hmm. A, product, a product manager will help anticipate the next two years of fires, right? Mm-hmm. So that when they're making those changes or doing what they, they need to do there, that they're going to do something that's going to carry you forward, right? And I think that's going to be like the biggest piece of it. I've seen that make the biggest difference at UNO. I have two, and it's interesting going back to the company itself and when the company was founded and what area it's in and all of that. And I feel like technology first companies have had product managers since the beginning of time, right? Like the PayPal's, the eBay's, the Amazon's, the you know, whoever, right? And then you've got like these middle ones that kind of e-commerce or the app and in-person, oftentimes e-commerce and the app will start to take a larger hold and they realize fairly early, okay, we need to invest in technology. We need to hire a good CTO that's going to envision how we need to create this. And that CTO is going to say, you need product managers between people that really understand the business and the engineering department or really understand their area and their department and the engineering department and help future-proof it, as well as speak both languages, et cetera. And then you've got the companies that, you know, have kind of been late to the party and they thought, oh, everybody has a website. It's super easy to do because everyone else is doing it. They can't see behind the scenes. And they think, well, we'll just put as few people as possible on this, just like we do in the stores. And we'll run it kind of like that. And we'll invest in customer service and we'll invest in marketing, but we're not going to invest in the infrastructure, right? Because we haven't had to do that before. We just lease buildings and somebody else takes care of it. And those guys are often the ones that don't have product managers yet. And look, just going back to the episode last week, like with Sid and Matt, like because Novo is technology first and it was founded, you know, fairly recently, they have a pretty significant head start. Whereas a lot of other people are like, well, yeah, we're like 10 years behind. But that's why it's so cool to me to be aware of new technology, because there are different types of solutions out there that can help companies be able to help their customers faster, be able to get more data faster. And it, I mean, it's not just spec. However, spec is the only one I've seen that does what you guys do as far as the com- the customer journey and allowing the merchant to have so much control over it. And you're not holding the data like they're dealing with it the way that they want. You're just giving them a bigger, a wider lens, right? But there's, you know, lots, I mean, gosh, even just SaaS as a whole, right, has opened up a whole new world of opportunities for e-commerce and marketplace and fintechs. And unfortunately, so has FAST, right? Fraud as a service. (laughs) So it's like we're constantly this cat and mouse game, as always. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's the thing that we keep bumping into. And a big part of like why we do what we do here is it's gotten so fast and iterative on the adversary side of things that it sometimes feels like the thought of fighting and winning is just ridiculous. Like just being able to feel the sensation of just feeling on it. It's like when you get it, it's there for a moment and then the next fire. And that is like a lot of where I look at the amazing people in this industry like okay cool this is the problem we want to solve this is the feeling that we want to be able to bring to these people bring to fraud fighters the whole but yes back on the previous topic and i want to make sure i touch on this like specifically if you have product managers amazing if your product managers spend all of their time with the tech team you need to grab Mm. them by the collar and pull them in and then make (laughs) them sit with the fraud ops team. You need to make them sit with a fraud strategy team and understand that piece of it because, and it's a real easy sell. 
right? It's, mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't actually have to hold them up. Really, listen, you're, you're having this experience here. You're going to have one of two resume bullets, right? You're going to have one resume bullet that says, I shipped product, right? You're going to have a different resume bullet that says, I shipped product that reduced chargebacks by X percent, that reduced fraudulent account takeovers, that optimized marketing spend. You're going to be able to put percentages and dollar signs in your resume that are going to take you wherever the hell you want to go. So you can be whichever product manager you want, but I'm giving you the opportunity to be make that one, right? And it's a super easy sell. Hopefully that's helpful to someone. Uh, but I found like just a huge difference maker in the organization where like tech and fraud just work incredibly well together. Such good insight. And honestly, I think that's how I think fraud buyers need to talk to every department, right? And every different piece. And I think that's what we've been trying to get at is understanding what those other departments care about and then translating how fraud impacts it. Because fraud really does impact every part of the business, whether it's your shipping costs, it's your fulfillment center, it's, you know, your customer service, it's your marketing, your e-commerce, your sales, like all their business intelligence, like all those things. We touch all of them, but oftentimes it's, yeah, you just sit at the very end of the transaction and you just do this and we don't really, we don't understand what you do. So we're just gonna, yeah, but actually it's trying to sell this, sell the dream. Oh my gosh, that sounds so cheesy, but like, of, hey, let's all work together and have a common source of truth. And then I can basically tell you where you're screwing up, but in a very like helpful way to make the business better. And I think that the one other thing I was going to say too, is that the fraud fighters that I know that don't ever come to me and say, God, I wish my business would understand me or they don't, you know, you know, the business doesn't want, you know, they're, I, there was somebody the other day that, you know, that a new product launched and asked how it went. They were like, you know how it goes. The company wants to sell, sell, sell. And they don't understand why you're stopping and you have to explain to them why. And it's, but okay. Like that, yeah, we can accept that and we can be negative about it. And we can be, well, oh, that's just the way it is. And we're always going to fight each other and blah, blah, blah. Or we can say, this is where I see the front fighters who are really like moving up in their organization and being paid more and getting more opportunities as other organizations are the ones who can speak to the business, the ones who can speak to different areas of the business and say, hey, this is how, you know, if we can fix this, then your conversion rate will be better. Hey, if we can do this, this is how this is impacting this, uh, your numbers here and there and the other thing. And same with e-commerce and same with security and all of that. And so it's getting them all together. I mean, some of the best fraud teams I know have had fraud squads or, you know, fraud... uh, they call them different things, but basically it's like, you know, at least one representative of every part of the business and they meet at least once a month and fraud explains what they're seeing. And then, oh, the InfoSec team's like, oh, that explains why we saw high traffic over here. And then, you know, this and that and the other, they're all together. And that's kind of the way I see what you're talking about, right? Just with, instead of being in a room once a month, you're looking at the same data and being able to say, oh, wow, okay, so we can segment these users into this path. We know who they are. We can feel very confident about them. Let's like give them lightning speed checkout. Let's give them, you know, roll out the red carpet. Let's let's even give them a percentage or like, you know, a little promo or whatever you want to do, right? Let's really like concierge that that group. But then these other guys, let's watch how they move and let's see. And, and then based on what they do and how long they're there and where they're going and all these other data points. Let's, you know, maybe ask them a little bit more information. And then there's these other guys over here that we're just going to, you know, keep out. And, and I mean, this is all just my interpretation. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's not technical, but I think that trying to explain that to listeners, I think that those are things that, to your point earlier, there's a lot of things that we've just gotten comfortable with, like, well, that's the way it is. And that's exactly what Matt said last week. He was like, I want to challenge the status quo, right? I want to be able to say, 
well, how can we do this? I mean, the funny part is Matt had never heard us back until we got off the call. And he was like, wait, I mean, he literally has texted me twice. Like, can you introduce me to Francis Beck? And we all know Chris has ADHD, so I have not done it yet, but I'll try to remember after we get through this. And Sid too was like, how does it work? Asking me all these questions. And I'm like, guys, I have to go. I have a doctor's like, I felt that we're like edging up. But it was because they're like, wait, we wouldn't have to do four or five APIs to four or five different like companies for a tech stack and just not even have any APIs. Like, how does this work? And it takes a while to understand it because it's almost too easy. Um, we're used to, okay, well, we have to fit into this mold. Okay, what data does this provider want? And then how are we going to get, you know, we have to fit to how we're going to get back and all of this. And meanwhile, there's just so much customization that it's almost like hard to understand. Yeah, no, I mean, like Patrick and I wanted this technology for ourselves for years, you know. When you were at eBay, when you were at Fires, right? Yeah, we wanted it when we were at Threat as well. A significant amount of our customers had difficulty implementing us, even coming up to their one-year renewal periods, just because getting engineering alignments and getting that to execute could be Mm. tough. So even at Threat, we wanted Spec to exist. That's a really good point. I've mentioned you guys to more than a few vendors. Hey, I understand that you guys just want your prospects to be able to POC you. And then they'll know that, oh, you're better than the others but right now because you can't POC. Like, and you're just going off of the salespeople's word, right? And hey, if you want people to be able to do a proof of concept quickly, like hook up with spec on their platform and then you just have, you know. So I see there's so many opportunities with democratizing and everything else and not at all trying to make it about spec. But I think that in the context, as far as that's why you've been able to talk to different departments and be able to do different things and stuff like that. And so... Just kind of bringing it all together and understanding. So if we are following this imaginary, well, a group of imaginary companies through the journey, right? Mm -hmm. They hypothetically all decided, oh, we all want to understand that. We all want to have this data. It will help us all in different ways. And at the end of the day, it'll really help the fraud team, which we're not used to, right? We're not used to being let out of the basement or to get a little sunlight. But then down the road, it's... You know, I know that the implementation is extremely simple. You guys made it that way, knowing the life of a front fighter and how hard it is for engineering. So there's not any engineering resources there. So then once you put it in place, what are a couple of the use cases that you have been brought on to solve? And then have there been any surprises, good or bad? Yeah. So like at the core of it, right, like we're helping people see, understand and shape their customer journeys. Like the first word, like see, is always a fun one because we're we invariably tell them things on day one that they did not know were true, which is it's not a it doesn't come across as like shocking. It just comes across as, oh, I'm so glad we can see that now. That makes something else make a lot more sense. I think one of the and we we kind of like briefly touched on it is like InfoSec, right? So like we talk to InfoSec as part of every customer onboarding. Like we're a very different type of technology. So a lot of times they're like, it's almost like looking at something for the first time. Like they've never seen anyone who does something quite like this. But one of the things that like fraud teams typically don't understand or like have great visibility to is like your InfoSec team probably has one to two dozen threat intelligence feeds that are constantly streaming into them. They're likely to have some sort of security operating center that is like literally looking, you know, like it is a staff service that is watching like, you know, logs and events happening around the clock, right? So there is all this capacity in your InfoSec team that actually has interesting benefits and synergies with what's happening in the fraud end of the world, but there's no bridge there. And they also don't know how to enforce it because there's no enforcement layer there. So one of the fun things that we end up finding is like, hey, we're looking at this whole customer journey. There is like all these things where InfoSec is like, ah, we're medium on this, but we're going to let it happen. 
And now we're getting like a direct feedback. It's like, ah, yeah, so that person never followed the redirect link. Or, ah, yeah, that person went in just to check if there was a safe payment instrument and then just disappeared. Or like, oh, yeah, like that person, like this group of people all went in to buy from a specific seller or all these like brand new payment instruments are all going to this newly created merchant, right? Like, you know, on, it's like all of that type of stuff we see is like that turns into a feedback loop that immediately goes back up to really everybody. But like from the InfoSec team's perspective, it's, oh, here's this visibility. We understand better about what's working, what's not working and how to, to tie that thing together. We often get brought in to do like, really like one of two things, right? One is, can you look at an entire customer journey, classify them all, and then maybe take some specific actions, right? So if we'll say if it's like unauthorized resellers or if it's promotion abuse, something along that line. The other is like, hey, we have all of these different technologies. Can we get them all to work together? (laughs) Right, right? And it's just like, you know, here's like seven different e-touch points. I don't want seven different touch points times three different external solutions times five different internal services. Like that's more projects than I have engineers for the next 10 years. Can you just get those all up? The answer to that is yes. But what we end up finding is that their normal user behavior is usually a little bit different than they think it is. And I'm uh, laughing just because I ran into that all the time, even without having any visibility on user behavior. There was often a disconnect between who the fraud team thought that the customer was and who every other department thought that the customer was. The biggest delta was always, and I mean, I'm picking on them again, but marketing, right? But then still, even within that, there were so many different viewpoints of who, what that customer persona was. And I'm not saying the fraud team was right either, because we were seeing one, you know, just a couple of percentage points of all of transactions, but it's easy for each part because you have those different perspectives from different parts of the house. Like it's easy for you to think this is the way the customer is. This is what they're doing in here. This is what they're doing on our site. So I can only imagine that there's some surprises there. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so some things that you would never do because you wouldn't think would be possible or economical, like you can start doing, which that gets... So imagine you are a ticketing site, right? Just theoretically, right? So you're ticketing site. You have a bunch of visitors that'll come up, look at prices, leave. Now, some of those are people who are price shopping, And those people you want to like incent to convert, right? But you also have scrapers and you also have like competitive, like intelligence gathering, like in the typical way of things, like you would need to have full visibility into what they've done on the site to really have a good sense of like, does this person deserve to be offered a promo to help push them to conversion or not? Like after they've gone through every part of the site until checkout. So like they're touching everything before you have even, you know, a slight picture of like, okay, should we incentivize them or are they bad? Like, right. That makes sense. And so, you know, Never in your wildest dreams would you imagine like anyone who gets to a checkout page, I'm just going to like, oh, no, I'm worried about this person. And just like, we're going to push them immediately a promo code to check out. It's like, no, no, no. Like there is, oh, no, I'm worried about this person. And just like, we're going to push them immediately a promo code to check out. It's like, there is a bunch of people that we do not want to get promotional discounts to. Right. And like, how do we like identify? So you start to... The brokers, to- the bots, the scrapers, the, all those things, right? Or the people trying to jam traffic through for DDoS or all kinds of stuff. You don't want to give them all promo code because who knows where they'll end up. Totally. So like we get on the one end of it of, okay, we've identified where marketing was already being abused. So let's stop spending money in this area. But like, hey, here's this completely new vehicle to drive greater conversion, to drive greater activation, to drive more like new or reactivated buyers, right? And like, we start to create possibility as opposed to like just narrowing down on the specifics of like, who's back. So 
anyway, it's been a pretty incredible experience thus far. And I think bringing all of these teams together to focus on the same problem, to just focus on shaping the customer journey has been just uh, honestly like, phenomenal. I, I know it is just because I have lived experience that is very hard as, you know, uh, as a fraud fighter to just be in the space, like your typical things like, hey, so here's your loss budget for the year. But if anyone asks you, we don't have a fraud problem. Like I know what that line is, right? So, uh, you know, I know it's it's very, you know, it's one thing for me to be sitting here from, you know, like kind of like the vendor seat, right? And be like, hey, guys, like we can think bigger because like I understand. I understand it's a slog. Um, but, you know, I, I really, you know, we're seeing it happen and uh, we're excited to be helping people, you know, do something fundamentally different and kind of question the way things have been done for the last 20 years. Yeah, which to me is always exciting because I feel like, you know, I've said this many times before, but there are definitely people and organizations that I've seen that it probably is an easier way out in some ways. But then again, it also makes me like, I I know how much opportunity there is for people who are like, you know what, like a fraud tool is a fraud tool. And we've had the same fraud tool, you know, since 2010. And yeah, but that company hasn't iterated and hasn't really, you know, invested in R&D. And that is a huge rant that I go on. I feel like I get close to going on quite a bit because honestly, if every solution provider just invested in innovating and keep trying to keep up at least a little bit with bad guys, then we wouldn't have to switch all the time. But unfortunately, competing goals and all that. But there are some people out there that kind of decide, well, we this is what we did before. It's fine, whatever. But I've always been someone who, no, we have to keep learning and keep growing because we are often being beat, right? And it would be so cool to even, not even, I don't, I think most of us have never really thought about winning this battle. Like we don't feel like that's possible. It's more like, I just like to keep up a little bit. I'd like to not be eight, nine, 10 months. Cause I always say fraudsters don't need budgets. Fraudsters don't need engineering resources. Fraudsters don't need to like beg for budget so they can go meet with their peers and learn things. Fraudsters don't need to do those things so they can move like 10 times as fast. And just learning what's out there is so cool to me. But I think additionally, even if it's wanting this episode to be so much more than just learning about new technology and what's possible, I think it's really important to think like other people and you know, learn, okay, what is it about your organization? What do they care about most? What's the business goals right now? Because the business goal six months ago might be different than it is now. Whether that's, hey, we need to get more customers or, hey, we just need our current customers to spend more money or, oh, we need this, that, and the other thing. And I feel like for so long, this last part of the path, the after checkout all the way through 90 to 120 days after an item's been, item or service has been delivered, has just been like the space where like the business is like, oh, we'll write it off, right? Oh, it's a cost of doing business. But what if you could change that to be like, no, we can actually implement further up because I'm able to communicate to these different areas on why it matters to them. And that honestly was a huge change for me in talking with so many fraud leaders and me asking the ones who were getting things done 10 years ago. How are you able to do that? Oh, I did brown bag lunch and I like I I brought everyone in and explained to them what I did. Or one person that was head of product payments products for a very large social media company. And they were like the only one in charge of payments at the time. Now there's quite a large thing, but it was like I literally feel like I spend 60 to 70% of my job explaining to everyone else in the company what my job is. But he did that for a year or two and or actually probably less than that. I think it was six months. And then all of a sudden, like when he, he'd speak to each department and explain to them how it related to them, you have a core deck and then you have a few variations. And after doing that for a while, oh, I get it. And now they're all coming to him and then they're bringing him in on projects so much further up the stream. And it's never going to be a utopia, but like it, 
when you are able to communicate to people why it matters, I think it makes a big difference. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think we're seeing that more and more. I think the biggest piece of it is just everyone at their core feels like it is their responsibility to understand who your customers are, who's on your site, and what are they doing and why. And like, ultimately, there's a different flavor of the same question, right? And being able to realize, hey, we're all on the same side, right? There's this thing that I say internally, we're like training field people. Every business is unique. Every business is a just a human coordination exercise. And every business is made out of meat, right? These are all people that like have their own reasons for being there, their own hopes, their own dreams, their own background, their own predispositions, right? So understand that like these are imperfect organizations that are made out of people who are doing their best, right? And just understand what it is that they're, what it is they're after and help them get there. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, when you're learning about organisms in biology, right? And like, you know, that was just what I was thinking when you were talking like these like amoebas or whatever they are, right? Like just, Mm -hmm. and it's true. And I think, you know, you kind of start with, the company and then you drill down and, and it really is about people. And I think, you know, I, we could even have a whole conversation about how company culture and last quarter's numbers will impact so many decisions and fear and people's personalities and all that. I mean, maybe we can have that for the next conversation. <laughs> we are because we're, as always, hitting time because you and I I've proven actually two days in a row that we can talk for multiple hours in a row. And I can only imagine, I know how many things I haven't been doing by doing that. I can only imagine you're in the same boat, but it is always so much fun to talk with you, Nate. And I think that, you know, you and I both nerd out in such a way because we want to see, we care about this industry so much, right? I think for the majority of us, once we're in it, we're in it. Even if we're not going to stay on the ground forever, we want to support it. And I think that's why you and I geek out so much. And we know so many people in common and we know so many companies in common and things like that because we are both on the sidelines wanting to support those fraud fighters just in different ways. And I think that at the end of the day, that's where my company came out of. That's where the podcast came out of. That's how that came out of is wanting to support this industry that we care about because we feel like, hey, nobody else does. Like we're kind of the underdogs in all of technology, whether we're looking at it from a lens of the payments ecosystem or whether we're looking at it from the lens of internally in our organizations. So why not help the little guy? But I think we also both share a vision where we won't be the little guy forever, right? And if that's something that either one of us can help just a few people do in their careers and make an impact saying, hey, this is why this matters. And it's not, it doesn't just matter because like I say it does or because I want to matter. It matters because it's impacting you this way and it's impacting you that way. It's impacting you that way. Okay, now let's all get, I I know it's not, I know it's not unrealistic because I know of people that have gotten there, but it can certainly seem like it's foreign and you're speaking about at first. Or, oh yeah, that must be nice. You live in a happy little universe with clouds and unicorns. Like pink clouds eating words. But wrapping up, Nate, I just so appreciate you for all your time and sharing your expertise and also just back for sponsoring and really feeling like fraudology is important and keeping the community informed and together and collaborating is. And so appreciate that as well. Grace, I am delighted as ever to be a part of fraudology. And I just like 
the community at large. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Absolutely. And I will be announcing it later in the intro as well, but I know you'll be at MRC. I will be also. So we hope to meet as many people as possible. Yeah. And connect with all of our old friends as well. (laughs) MRC is a bit of a party. I say it's like the high school reunion of all the people that you like, mostly. Mm -hmm. Thanks again, and I will see you very soon, just in a couple weeks. Perfect. Thanks, Therese. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.